you have your Bibles, you can turn to <clears throat> Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. Let me start with a question. You ever found yourself in a situation where you felt out of place? Not like I feel right now. <laughs> but where you felt out of place. I can remember one of my first jobs that I uh, worked was for one of the big box stores. And I won't call it by name, but it started with a wall and ended with a mart. And uh, I worked there when I was in high school. And when I got hired there, I got hired to work in the garden center. <clears throat> now, I know nothing about gardening, but uh, my job was to be, so I was told to load cars up, right? Fertilizer, people would buy mulch, flowers, plants. This time of year, it'd be Christmas trees. Got to run a chainsaw. That was awesome. Uh, and so that was what I was told my job would be. And in a garden center at Walmart, back then anyway, you had to have at least three people to operate that area of the store. You'd have somebody on the cash register. You had somebody at the gate, a greeter. And then you'd have someone who was supposed to do the job I was hired to do, which was load cars. So you'd have to have three people. My first day working there in the job, I showed up and I was going to be trained by someone. And when I got there, the gal who met me out in the garden center said, I'm going to train you on the register. And I'm like, well, I wasn't hired to run the register. And she goes, well, you're going to, you're going to run the register today. I was like, okay, whatever. And uh, so I went out and she said, let me, let me just show you, this is real basic. Right? So she said, this is real basic. You just scan things, right? Beep. Beep. put them in the bags, and then you just hit pay and take their money or let them run a card, and then they leave. Okay, so the first time she showed me that, we hit a snag. And in that snag, she has to go through. She goes, let me just show you how to do this so we don't have to call somebody out here. And she shows me this bypass that we do, this little bypass on the register and go around everything. And, um, <clears throat> and then she says, oh, I'm leaving. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're leaving. She goes, yeah, I'm, I, I got to go. Uh, but you run the register, you know what you're doing. And I'm thinking, no, no, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm out there all by myself. Remember, you're supposed to have three people out there. And I'm out there all by myself. Uh, so I ran the register and I messed up, I don't know how many transactions. <clears throat> I was approached later and asked how it was that I knew how to do this bypass thing that I kept doing over and over to avoid having to call somebody to turn the key. And then as I got halfway through my shift, this guy shows up out there and he says, hey, what's your name? I said, my name's Matt. And he says, you come with me. And I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? He's like, just come on, just come on. I was like, okay. And we got on this thing called a scissor lift. And I thought that was awesome at first because I was just riding across the store and it goes like half a mile an hour. And I was like, I'm getting paid for this and it's taking forever. And we got all the way across the store to the grocery side and it was all fun and games until he made the thing go up in the air. And uh, this thing was rickety, and chains were shaking on it. And we were shaking, and I was grabbing to the rafter for dear life. And he's like, what's, what's the matter? And I was like, we're going to die. That's what's the matter. And I'm not even supposed to be on this thing. I'm not even 18, and I'm telling you about all kinds of rules that were broken at Walmart. It was not my fault. <clears throat> and so, so we're up there anyway. And then when I get back, there's a manager waiting for me. She's, she's like, why did you leave this area? There's been nobody out here the whole time. And I'm like, well, because he told me to. And anyway, the day just got worse and worse and worse. And it was all because I did not, I was so out of place and I did not know what my role there was. I was told that my role was going to be this. When they brought me in, 
They immediately had me start doing something else and then something else. And you know what? When you don't know what your role is, you're open to everything and chaos ensues. And chaos is what happened. I could tell you about the time that I broke a $700 TV. I could tell you about the time that I almost dropped a bicycle from the ceiling onto my friend's head as we were trying to get that down. Chaos ensued because we didn't know what our role was. I could also tell you about the time that we rode on the forklift, two people, and we weren't supposed to do that. But anyway, and <clears throat> that's the point, that you and I, as Christians, need to know what our role is. What does it look like to live faithfully in this world as Christians? What is our status as Christians in the world as we have our eye on the world to come? If I'd been more mature, and if I had a nickel for every time I'd said that in my life, I'd been more mature. When I worked at Walmart on that day, I would have said, no, my job is this. I was hired to do this, and that's all I'm going to do, and I'll just stay here and do that and, uh, until someone with authority comes and tells me and trains me to do something else. But for us as Christians, what does it look like for our status to live faithfully in this world with, a, with an eye on the world to come? As Pastor Ken said last week, we aren't to isolate ourselves from the world around us. Yet this is certainly a temptation <clears throat> for us that we want to isolate ourselves in, and create these Christian subcultures in order to insulate ourselves from the broader culture. Can we be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good as Christians? And actually, that's a trick question because the answer is no. You actually, if you're really truly heavenly minded, you'll be earthly good. But I think you understand what we're getting at. Can we become so focused on the temporal that we forget about the eternal as Christians? As Christians, can we begin to make idols out of good earthly things like politics, activism, and family, creating a whole nother gospel? This is the error that leads us to thinking that we're going to bring about some sort of utopia through our actions. If we just educate everyone better, then the world will be a better place. If we can just get the right person in office, if we can just get the right policies enacted, then the world will be a better place. A theologian by the name of David Van Drunen, which that's an awesome name. If you're going to be a theologian, you should have a last name, Van Drunen. Uh, who is at Westminster Seminary, California. He's an attorney, and he's also a systematician. That's just a fancy word for He's a systematic theologian. And he said this. He's got a lot of work that's very helpful, in my opinion. And he says there's three New Testament terms, and we're getting to Genesis 47. Just bear with me. There's three New Testament terms, he says, that are really helpful for us as we try to find our way and our role in the world to live faithfully as God's people. He says, the first one is that we are sojourners. And this is what we'll see in the text this morning in Genesis 47. But 1 Peter refers to us as this. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1.17, the ESV still translates it exiles, but as sojourners. Or in 1 Peter 2.1, that the New Testament refers to you and I as sojourners in this world. That Peter calls us to conduct ourselves in reverent fear during our sojourner. He says that as sojourners, we should abstain from sinful desires. Peter, term, his terms refer to a people living or traveling through a place that is not their true home. That as sojourners, we are a people who are living or traveling through a place that is not our true home. 
When he refers to Abraham, Abraham was looking forward, and he quotes Hebrews 11.10. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God and was longing for a better country, a heavenly one. So it is for Christians today that we are looking forward to a better city to come. Next, we're to live as exiles. The Apostle Peter also uses this terminology. In 1 Peter 1.1, he refers to us as elect exiles who are scattered about. Exiles who are living among the pagans. The Old Testament Israel's exile was in Babylon, and it was the background for this understanding that Peter refers to us as. That God has called us to live ordinary lives as far as possible, working, raising families, seeking the well-being of our foreign city while we wait eagerly for God to end our exile and to return us to our own land. This is what Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14 outlines. This, Peter suggests, writes Van Drunen, is how Christians must live here and now. We do not await the return of an earthly city of Jerusalem, but what the earthly city represented, the new Jerusalem that we just sang about or will feast, that we are waiting for that city, <clears throat> that Jerusalem from above. And then the last term that Van Drunen offers that helps us, a New Testament term, with what our role is as Christians <clears throat> to live faithfully in this world is the term of dual citizenship. And here he's referring to Paul's writing there in Philippians 3.20 where he says that our citizenship is in heaven. But he points out that there in Acts that Paul, he uh, falls back on his Roman citizenship, something that not many were privileged to have that Paul had, and he appealed to even through the process of his working his way there in the end of Acts. But he, he says that his citizenship is ultimately in heaven, that he's a dual citizen. He's a citizen in the earthly country. And Van Druden writes, this citizenship with a modest patriotism is not inconsistent with Christian profession, but love of our earthly country must be tempered by the much stronger devotion to our heavenly country. He says that our ultimate allegiance belongs to our heavenly citizenship as we seek the good of our citizenship here on earth. So these three terms, sojourners, exiles, and dual citizens, or things that can help us is we begin to understand what is our role here as believers to live faithfully in the time and the place that God has placed us in in his providence. There's no surprise that God has you here, no surprise to him anyway, that he has you here right now in this time, in this place, in this culture. In the passage before us today here in Genesis chapter 47, Joseph offers a great example of what it looks like to live faithfully in the world to live as a sojourner, an exile, and a dual citizen. Joseph is living faithfully in response to God's plan. That'd be the thesis of my sermon, if you will. That Joseph is living faithfully in response to God's plan. So if you have God's word open, go to Genesis chapter 47 now. We're going to read part of this passage, and then we'll read the rest of it a little bit later on as we walk through it. Genesis chapter 47, we're going to look at verse 13. And then as we read, we'll go down from 13 to uh, verse 27 and read to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. 
so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of famine. Verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you've said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and mercy to us. Father, we thank, we are so thankful that in and of ourselves we are lost, helpless, and hopeless. Father, we cannot save ourselves, we cannot help ourselves, we cannot lift ourselves out of the sin that we are enslaved to and the death that awaits us. But Father, in your mercy and your grace, you spoke to us. You called out to us in your word. It's just a reminder that even to have your word is such magnificent grace. And so this morning, as we turn our attention to it, I pray that our hearts would be attuned to your word, that your spirit has gone before and has worked the soil of our hearts, that it would be good soil that the seeds would fall on this morning, and that we would hear and that we'd believe and we respond in faith. And Father, that it would bear fruit in our lives. And that with it bearing fruit would be to your glory and would truly be to the good of those around us, just as we witness here in Joseph's life. So bless this time for your sake, for your name's sake, and for our good. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, a couple of things are, are going on here that we can notice throughout the end of this chapter. Here in Genesis 47, we're focusing in for a moment, if you will, zooming in on this time of famine, a little bit more broader of the context. And what we've been looking at so far is we've been looking at the interaction between Joseph and his brothers, right? His brothers coming to get food, returning to home, and then needing to come back to receive food again, and eventually the Lord leading Jacob to bring the whole family down to Egypt, and so here we're getting kind of a broader picture of this famine and its effects, not just on God's people, on Israel and his family, but also on Egypt, the broader context as well. And so in verse 13, it starts that way. It says, now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of famine. So quickly, let me see if I can set the stage for us here in the immediate context and what's just happened. So if you remember last week, and I know it's been a long week, right? Many, many Thanksgiving dinners. Anybody got any Thanksgiving meals left to go? Uh, I saw one person who was honest. Uh, and, and so I read one time we eat anywhere between four and 10,000 calories in one Thanksgiving meal. So let that I encourage you. And maybe this week all you'll eat is, you know, some of those little juice packs and those paper wafers. Uh, so anyway, to, to make up for it. Thank you, Ken, for laughing. Everyone else, 
I don't know what's wrong with you. So anyway, uh, so here's what we see in this immediate context as we try to set the stage of what's going on. If you remember, Jacob has just blessed Pharaoh. Remember, as Pastor Ken said last week, how significant this was. That, that it was always the greater who would bless the lesser. And you can remember, you've got to catch the, the, the drama of the moment of Pharaoh, who is the most powerful man in the world at the time. And he's here receiving a blessing from someone who has had to come to his country to be preserved, to receive food, right? I mean, he's out, money and everything else. Of course, Pharaoh recognizes by God's grace that it is only through this man's son, Joseph, that even his own nation has been spared through this famine and has any food to offer. And so here we see that, that Pharaoh has just been blessed by Joseph. That's Genesis 47, 6. So you can look up at verse 6, and you can see that. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle. Uh, and so he lets them settle there in the land. And then in verse 10, we see that he meets Jacob, Joseph's father. In verse 10, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And so that's the context of what's just happened prior uh, preceding verses of what we're looking at today. So Jacob has blessed Pharaoh. And really what's happening here and what follows from this blessing that Pharaoh receives from Jacob is just the playing out of Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, we can remember what God had said to Abraham when he began building his people, making his people from Abraham. There in Genesis 12, when he called Abraham for the first time in verses 3 and 4, this is what he said. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we've seen that Pharaoh has opened up to Jacob and his family. He's allowed them to settle there in Goshen in the fertile land, and they are able to keep their flocks there, and he even puts them in charge of his own flocks uh, there in Goshen. So he's given them good land, and then Jacob is blessing him. And what we're going to see is just the playing out of that. We're going to see the manifestation of that blessing, that God indeed is blessing Pharaoh right now because he has blessed his people. He's been a blessing to his people, and so God is going to bless him as well in what follows. And what you can contrast this with, if you were to go forward to the book of Exodus, and we see that there comes to Pharaoh who remembers not Joseph and what he'd done for Egypt, and he is not a blessing, he is a curse upon Egypt, well, he himself will be cursed. We see there in Exodus as his fingers, as Russ Ramsey so eloquently said, are pried loose one finger at a time with each plague until he lets go of God's people and finds himself drowning in judgment in the Red Sea. And so we see that contrast set up there. And then you could look at Genesis 41, 56 through 57, and what's going on there is we're told uh, of what's playing out here too. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up the storehouses and he sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy because the famine was severe over all the earth. And so we see that Joseph, in, uh, through this, there is a blessing to all of the earth as well through what's going on here in Egypt and through God's providential working through Joseph. So 
In this section that we're moving forward into here, verses 13 through 28, we'll see two primary things. Egypt is being provided for, and Pharaoh is going to prosper. Egypt is being provided for, and Pharaoh is going to prosper. And then at the end of that, we'll see Israel's prospering as well. All right, let's look at verses 13 through 15, because in 13 through 15, we see with the severity of the famine, people are coming forward to buy food with money, right? So let's look at what happens. We've read 13 a couple of times. Let's look at verse 14. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in Canaan and exchanged it for grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So they brought money to Joseph for grain, and then he is giving this money to Pharaoh. We're seeing Pharaoh is prospering. All right, and when the money uh, was all spent in the land of Canaan and and in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food, why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And so now they're out of money. They've bought food with the money. They've spent all their money. And so verses 16 through 18a, we see they will exchange livestock now for grain, for food. So look at verses 16 through 18a. And Joseph answered, said, give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year had ended, they came to the end of the following year and said to him, so we're seeing they're, gonna, they're running out of food again. And so now they have exchanged livestock for food. And now the food that they received from exchanging the livestock has run out. And then in verses 16, I mean 18b through 26, what's going to happen is they're going to now trade for food, labor, and land. Labor and land. So let's look at verses 18b through the following, through 26. All right. We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the herds and livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them and the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And he said... 
And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. And so here we see that now that they've run out of money and livestock, they're now exchanging land and labor uh, for food. Now there's a couple of things I think that we can notice from this passage. Without a doubt, we see that as they're giving this, these things, money, livestock, land, and labor, uh, Joseph is turning it over to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is prospering through this whole thing. But a couple of things I think we should notice. One, some have criticized what Joseph's doing here and saying, well, this is overly harsh of him to uh, be requiring this of them. But Derek Kidner, in his commentary, has a, I think, sufficient reply to that concern. He says the following. He says, It was axiomatic in the ancient world that one paid one's way so long as one had anything to part with, including, in the last resort, one's liberty. Israelite law accepted the principle while modifying it with the right of redemption. And there he references Leviticus 25.25. And so what he's saying, Gidner's saying, is in their culture, in their day, no one just took something for free if they had something else to part with. And he said, so it was not... And then notice this, too, just real, real quickly. Notice the text. Let the text tell us how they responded. Look at verse 25 again. You have saved our lives. They're not upset about this. They recognize we are going to die. And they are pleased with Joseph's leadership and his administration. And they're saying, you have provided for us. They're recognizing that the Lord has used Joseph and has granted him wisdom and that he has been a blessing uh, to their land. And he said, you've saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. And so we're seeing here that Joseph is providing for them and that they are giving of what they have to receive what it is that they need. And at the same time, Pharaoh is prospering. And I think this is following right here on the heels of Jacob blessing Pharaoh because Pharaoh has been for sure a blessing to his people as well. And it is all through God's providence of him working through the circumstances and situations that are going on in Joseph's life and his responding faithfully to the Lord and living obediently to the Lord. And so Pharaoh is blessed as well, and he prospers through this. And then look at verses 27 through 28, because what happens there is we see Israel's blessing. Look at 27. Thus Israel settled into the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. And they were fruitful and multiplied. I mean, this is Genesis 1, 26 and 27 language. They're fruitful and they multiply. This is going to continue on, right? So much so that when we get to Exodus, they're teeming, if you will, swarming, as they are fruitful and multiply and growing in greatness. God's people. And so it says they're fruitful and they multiply greatly. Verse 28, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147. And so here what we see is that God is blessing not only Pharaoh, but Israel through Joseph's leadership and through Joseph's faithfulness. 
that their needs are providing for and his own people are prospering in the midst of us. They're, they're being fruitful and they're multiplying greatly there in the land of Goshen as God has made provision for them there. I think what's so significant is that when we look back is that what is happening here is that Joseph is just living faithfully to God's direction in his life. If you go back to Genesis 41, 25, 28, and 32, just this exchange as Joseph is interpreting the dream of Pharaoh, notice what Joseph says. God has revealed to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what is about to do, what is about to come about. God will shortly bring it about. Joseph recognized that this is all the Lord's doing. This is all the Lord's providence and sovereignty at work here. And Joseph is just responding faithfully to God's revealed will. He's responding faithfully to God's plan. So hold that and we'll come back to it. And then I want you to notice one more thing. In this passage, because what we see is we see this, this blessing. Joseph, his faithful living is a blessing to Egypt, Pharaoh, and Israel. And then we see something significant there at the end of the chapter. Look at verses 29 through 31. And really what I would title this is an eye on the future or future orientation. Either way, I like future orientation better, but I figure most people aren't like me and they would prefer an eye on the future. And so um, you're welcome that I would consider that you're not like me. So verses 29 through 31, this this is what he says. He says, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, this is Jacob, he called his son Joseph and he said to him, If now I've found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. Here's what's happening. What is happening here is that he is saying, this is not the end. Egypt is not the end goal. Go back to 47.9. Remember when... um, Jacob met Pharaoh. What did he say when he asked how old he, how old he was? He said, the days of my sojourning. He says, I, I'm not in my homeland. So there's this language of sojourner. And here, what he's saying is, don't bury me in Egypt. See, our future orients our present. Our future orients our present. What our hope is set on, what we think the end goal, end game is, it orients what we're doing right now in the current moment. Now here's the difficulty. You can say one thing, right? That this is your end goal, end game, this is your future. You can say the right thing, but you can intuitively live in another direction as your heart is pulled and tugged toward a different future a different hope, a different end game. But here Jacob is telling Joseph, this is not the end for our people. Do not bury me here because this is not where God is ultimately going to plant us. See, Egypt matters, but it's not the final destination. Do you see that? The here, as they're living as exiles, so to speak, as they're living as sojourners, as Joseph is really living as a dual citizen, uh, Egypt matters. He's living faithfully in that moment 
and he is honoring God with his life and is a blessing to those who are around him. Egypt most certainly matters, but it is not the final destination. It's not the end game for God's people. So the big takeaway here is living a life of faithfulness to God results in a life of blessing to others. That living a life of faithfulness to God results in a life of blessing to others. That Joseph is living faithfully in response to God's direction and plan. So what about us? What about you and I right now as New Covenant believers? How does this passage apply to our lives? We must certainly don't find ourselves in Joseph's situation and circumstances. What about us? Well, first, and this is the big first. First, we need to locate ourselves in redemptive history. We need to locate ourselves or where we are in redemptive history of God's working, of building a people and bringing about full redemption. See, you and I have been served by a true and better Joseph. We first have to recognize that we have been served by a true and better Joseph. That Jesus, the Father's rightfully beloved Son, came to earth and he lived a perfect life. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was led away as a captive. He was wrongfully accused. He was falsely imprisoned. His blood was actually shed on the cross and he died and was raised on the third day. And through him, through this, he saved his brothers who betrayed him from something much more severe than famine. He saved us from sin and death. See, brothers and sisters, first we have to recognize that we have been served by a true and better Joseph. That there is one who has come and who has considered not his own interest but became the form of a servant. And he descended, condescended to the point of death and even death on a cross for you and I so that we could be raised out of the sin and death that enslaves us and awaits us, and that we could be redeemed and ransomed for his glory. See, first, we have to recognize that we have been served by Christ Jesus. I think the first question this morning to ask is, have you received that salvation? You here this morning... And I think the question to ask is whether or not you receive that is, do you recognize your plight? Do you recognize the situation that you're in apart from Christ? Because the reality is, is that everybody lives with faith and hope in something. Everybody does. We all live with our faith put in something. It may be put in our own intellect. It may be put in our own strength, our health. It could be our bank account. It could be our abilities, our job, our career. It could be a relationship, marriage. It could be our our children, parenting, that we're putting our faith. And here's the thing. We constantly move our faith. Here's the other thing. We like to diversify our hope portfolio. Let's put like 10% over here. And well, if that one doesn't work out, let's put a little bit over here. And if that doesn't work out, let's put a little bit over here. But see, what God's word calls us to do is to put all of our eggs in one basket. Put all of our hope in Christ and in Christ alone. And to put our faith in Christ and Christ alone. Not in our abilities, not when, oh, that career didn't work out quite the way I hoped it would, so now let's turn and put my hope over here. Now maybe my kid will be the athlete I never was. And on and on and on we can go. It's like Calvin said, the heart is an idol factory. We tear one down and one comes right back up. 
to take its place. See, God's word calls us to put all of our hope in Christ. And so first, we have to recognize the situation that we are in. We have to recognize the bad news before we understand how good the good news really is. That you and I are absolutely hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. That God has created us, every one of us, and he lays claim on us because he's created us. And he's called us to live as his image bearers, but we have rejected that call and we have committed what R.C. Sproul called cosmic treason against God. And that we have tried to usurp his role as God over all the universe and be gods ourselves and be autonomous and set our own rules and our own direction and chart our own course. And maybe you've done this through moralism and you think if I'm really good, I'll earn favor with God. Or maybe you've done it through reckless abandon and say, I'll just forge my own path, my own way and do my own thing and I'll be okay on my own. And guess what? You're absolutely wrong. Hear me and hear me well. All paths do lead to God. Only one path will lead you there in his favor. It's appointed once for each of us to die and after that judgment. So you can live however you want and you will find yourself before the God who created you and lays claim on you in the end. But only will you find him in favor if you stand veiled in Christ. But if you try to answer for yourself, if you thought you were smooth enough, smart enough, good enough, and try to stand on your own, you cannot stand up under that judgment. For God will bring judgment righteously against our sin. He's not the sloppy janitor who just sweeps the dirt under the rug and ignores it. No, he's the righteous judge who deals with all of it. We like it when we think about those who've sinned about against us. We don't like it when we think about our sin. But God will judge each and every one of us and we will either be found in Christ and receive pardon because he paid our debt on the cross or we will have to bear up under that judgment ourselves and we never can and that's why death, is, that's why death and hell are forever. So this morning, do you recognize your plight? Do you see that you are way worse off than there was no food in the land for the famine was very severe? Friends, we are hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. But God in his grace has sent Christ Jesus, a true and better Joseph, to serve us. And no, we didn't deserve it. And the only thing that we can do is recognize our sin and rebellion Turn from that to the sweetness and the goodness of Christ and trust in him and him alone. And friend, put all of your eggs in that basket. All of your hope in him and him alone. Next. God the Father is saving and making a new people through Jesus Christ. As Pastor Ken said last week, he isn't making a singular nation, but he's making his church a people from all nations. And what that means is he's commissioned his church to take his gospel to all nations. You may say, well, I just wish that like Joseph, I, I had clarity on exactly what God's plan was and exactly what he was doing and, and how it is that I could respond faithfully to that. Christian, we know. Jesus said it himself. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. Go 
to the nations and make disciples. And baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. So we know God's plan. His plan is to make a people by the gospel going to the nations. So God's plan is clear, and we, like Joseph, are to live faithfully according to God's plan. And so as we've seen Joseph living faithfully according to God's plan, we've seen that he is, in fact, a blessing to those who are around him. Friends, the same is true for you and I. If we live faithfully according to God's plan, we will be a blessing to those who are around us. So let's ask a question. How does this service result in blessing others? Taking the gospel to all nations. How? Is our service only focused on the spiritual and the eternal? Man, all you're talking about is, is proclaiming the gospel. Are you only concerned about the spiritual and the eternal? Are you not concerned about physical needs? Are you not concerned about those practical needs as well? In 2012, Robert Woodbury published a landmark article entitled The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. Woodbury's focus was on African nations visited by conversionary Protestant missionaries in the 19th and 20th centuries, and he compared them with those visited by Roman Catholic or state church missionaries. And his findings, based on data, were significant. So here's what he's doing. He's saying, let's look at, at African countries who were visited by conversionary Protestant missionaries. I know that's kind of a mouthful, but here's what it is. Protestant missionaries, that's us, we're Protestant. Protestant missionaries who were focused on conversion. They were seeking missions for the primary purpose of proclaiming the gospel and seeing sinners come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That was their primary focus. And then he compared them to other missionaries who that was not their primary focus. Their primary focus may have been more of humanitarian nature. And this is, this is what his findings were. I'll throw them on the screen maybe if, if I did my PowerPoint right. All right? His findings based on data were this. Conversionary Protestants were crucial were a crucial catalyst initiating the development and spread of religious liberty, mass education, mass printing, newspapers, voluntary organizations, most major colonial reforms, and the codification of legal protections for non-whites. Do you see that? His findings were that, that in these areas where conversionary Protestants were at work with the gospel, that the fruit of the gospel were all of these other things that he just listed. And that those nations fared much better in those areas than nations who received missionaries who were not conversionary Protestant missionaries. One scholar quoting and remarking on Woodbury's article said this, these nations had comparatively stronger economies, healthier people, lower infant mortality, less corruption, more education, especially among women. A strong doctrine of conversion helps us to live generous, productive, and loving lives, never mind those who call conversion intolerant. See, this is where Woodbury's findings. He said, let's just look and just see what the fruit of true gospel missions is. And he said, the fruit of true gospel missions is healthier cultures. See, we as the church 
must be about proclaiming the gospel to all nations. Friends, what other organization is going to take up that mantle if we don't do it? And the answer is, there isn't one. That the Lord Jesus Christ gave that commission to you and I as a church to take the gospel to all nations. That it is to be our primary focus that the church has been uniquely called to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that God has commanded. See, our call here is to make disciples. And we do that by proclaiming the gospel, as we've sought to do today, not just in the preaching, but through our songs, through our whole service, by proclaiming the gospel. And as sinners come to realize their need for a Savior and they look to Christ in faith and repentance and are saved, then the discipleship process is not over. When we say make disciples, we mean what we typically call evangelism and discipleship. No, that's not the finish line when someone comes to faith in Christ. It's the starting line. Now we're called to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. There's our commission. There's the authority that we've been authorized to do to teach them what Christ has commanded. So as the church, we must be exclusively focused on making disciples. But here's the good news. As one writer said, that's the the sharp end of the spear. But as you and I scatter throughout this community during the week, we get to the broader end of the spear because what happens when we go out into the community? We live as disciples. And as we live as disciples, as we seek to live out faithfully to all that Christ has commanded us in our various vocations, it's a blessing to those who are around us. Why? Because what happens? Well, you're seeking to live faithfully as a single. You're seeking to live faithfully as a married. You're seeking to live faithfully as a parent. You're seeking to live faithfully in your job. You're recognizing there's needs in your community and that you feel compelled to do something about those needs because you want to love the whole person, not just them spiritually, but them physically as well. And so you're there and you're seeking to meet needs as many of you just did, what, a week and a half ago by packing up turkeys and taking food to others and as you'll do by seeking to to give gifts to those families who are in need and can't provide gifts for them, you're taking part in mercy ministries. You scatter about just living as a disciple. It informs the way that you vote. It informs the way that you think about politics. It informs the way that you submit to authority in the workplace. It informs the way that you seek to be just a neighbor to those who live in your subdivision, on your street, or maybe, you know, acres and acres away from you if you live in a rural area. But you're seeking to love others as you seek to obey all that Christ has commanded in all of your life. See, as we scatter the mission of the church broadens. And it's a blessing to everyone who is around us. As we seek to live as committed dads, as I was reading an article just yesterday by a sociologist talking about the the crisis that fatherlessness has caused in our nation. Friends, the sociological studies are there. And they're not just a few, they're numerous about Christians and their generosity, about healthy marriages and how that's good for society. God knew what he was doing when he put that in the top 10, right? Where do you learn to respect authority first and foremost? In the home. 
And it overflows from there. And I'm referring to the honor your father and mother commandment. I call it the top ten. I don't mean it in irreverence. But God knew what he was doing. That healthy families overflow into healthy communities. And if we don't know how to honor authority here on earth, we're not going to know how to honor the ultimate authority, which is who? God himself. And so as we live out faithfully as believers, it overflows into the world and community around us. Let me end it like this. Nobody yelled out amen. Not externally, in your heart maybe. Future orientation. Don't forget, our future orients our present. End here, 1 Peter 1. You can flip there if you want, but I'll read it to you. Peter refers to them there as elect exiles. They're dispersed, they're scattered about, they're not living in their homeland. They're, they're looking forward to a better land to come. But this is how he begins that letter. He begins it this way. He says, remember, in verse 3, you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He says, don't forget your hope. Hey, exiles, don't forget your hope. You, you have an, an imperishable, it will never go bad undefiled, it was, God was perfectly just and justifier in securing this redemption for you. It's unfading. It will never tarnish. It will never lose its luster. And he says, guess what? You don't have to worry about keeping it for yourself because it's kept for you in heaven by God himself, secure. And then go down to verse six, 17. And this is what he says. I mean, that's great. He begins with this hope. He says, don't forget your hope. Don't forget your final destination and let that orient your current, present life. But with that hope, what that does is it doesn't mean, oh, it doesn't matter what we do. We live however we want because our, our hope is secure. No, look at what he says in verse 17. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile or sojourning. Fear. That's a popular word in Christian culture today. He's talking about living in reverence to God. Here, here's what he means. When you go about your day, when you wake up in the morning and you walk into the kitchen to begin your day, maybe it's serving your nearest neighbors, those who live in the house with you, roommates, spouse, children. Then you get on the street and you drive and your neighbors are passing you at 60, 70 miles an hour. Right? Then you get to work, and your neighbors or coworkers, those who work with you, for you, are there. I think the question we need to ask ourselves in each of those spheres is today, am I going to live for me and my kingship, or am I going to live for God and his kingship? Who am I here representing today? Whose kingdom am I representing? Who am I being an ambassador for? for? For me and for my kingship or for God and for his kingship? And can I just tell you one quick test? Because I told you, you and I can say, 
I'm doing it for this, but our hearts can be tugged another way and we can just begin to live intuitively for our own kingship. One quick test is pay attention to your grumbling and complaining and your anger throughout the day because those will give you an absolute answer of what you're living for. Because when I grumble, it's because I'm thinking in my heart, Matt's kingdom come, Matt's will be done, and you just got in the way of it. (sighs) I just made a sandwich. I was on my way to the couch. I was going to watch the game. You really want me to play basketball right now? That's Brandon, who's always asking me to play basketball, by the way. (laughs) I don't know why they're laughing. Uh, They must know you, too. So, right? Matt's kingdom come, Matt's will be done when I get mad on the road and someone gets in my way. When a coworker sends me an email that's long and I don't want to reply to. When the phone rings and I think, I don't have time for this right now. Those things give us an indication of what we're living for and who we're living for in those moments. And Peter tells us with fear, that's a sobering word, to conduct ourselves with fear in our sojourning. Because we are to live for our Father in heaven and not for us. And when we do, it's for his glory, and it is for a blessing of those around us. So ask yourself, is my life a blight on those around me or a blessing? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and for his sacrifice on our behalf. It most certainly is my prayer, if there are any here who, no matter what their church background is, have not truly looked to Christ for salvation has not truly considered the weight of their sin and the judgment that they will stand under, that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would just sit down on their heart and impress upon them how bad the bad news really is. And, oh, Father, by your grace, would you raise them to look to Christ to see how sweet and amazing the good news really is. And they'd look to him in faith and repentance. Father, for us as a church, may we be committed collectively together to not neglect the calling you've given us, which is to make disciples. And that we cannot have our attention diverted from proclaiming the gospel and from encouraging and teaching one another to obey all that Christ has commanded each of us. And then, Father, that we would encourage one another as we spread and scatter each week to be the disciples you've called us to be. And may that be a blessing to our homes, our communities, and to the nations as well. Do it all for your glory and for your name's sake. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.